This is Sylvester on KCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Uh, coming up, uh, an interview with uh, Lady Borton. Uh, she goes by the name Lady, and she's a longtime uh, progressive activist uh, in uh, Vietnam. And she's just um, come up with a book she's worked on, uh, on feminist uh, perspectives in Vietnam, a bilingual book uh, in Vietnamese and English. And I had the opportunity of talking with her uh, when I was in Hanoi um, a few weeks ago, earlier this uh, month. And um, so we'll be bringing you that uh, interview uh, momentarily. Uh, today is an important day. Um, Alberto Gonzalez, the Attorney General, has announced his resignation. Uh, this is Dan Zhang with Subversity here on KCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is Subversity okay, on KCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're in Hanoi and we're talking uh, about her new book, uh, which is uh, Vietnamese Feminist Poets. Uh, from antiquity to the present, it's a co-publication. The first time a biannual or bilingual, sorry, <laughs> bilingual anthology has come out. Um, a co-production of a co-publishing of Feminist Press in uh, New York, and also City a, of City University, and also the um, uh, Women's Publishing House in Hanoi. Uh, uh, welcome, Lady Borden. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Dan, let me make one correction real fast. Um, this is not my book, but um, a combined uh, effort by many people. And the two key editors for this are two Vietnamese colleagues. And I'm editor number three, which meant I did a lot of the secretarial work and uh, quite a number of the translations with a Vietnamese colleague and also the introduction. But this, And it's a joint publication, first time that two publishing houses, a Vietnamese publishing house and an American publishing house, have done a book from the outset, from the very beginning. We started more than 10 years ago. So it's been a long process. Uh, it sat on one desk or another sometimes for a period of time. It's uh, been lots of fun, and we're all quite excited about it. It's the first time that we've had, this is part of a series of bilingual anthology of women's poetry from ancient to modern times. This is the first Asian language, is Vietnamese. What do you mean this is the first? Oh, the first time they've done an Asian uh, language uh, bilingual publication. Right, in this series, because they're part of the series, the others are in French and uh, Spanish, Dutch, Flemish, Hebrew. Uh, but this is the first Asian language, is Vietnamese. So, so it was a labor of love. Definitely a labor of love. I should also say that there were really four editors on this, uh, two Vietnamese who were the key, key ones. There's no way an American, I feel, can do this kind of work. You, the Vietnamese know their own literature, right? We never can know their literature the way they know it. Uh, so the two Vietnamese editors are clearly key, and then myself and the founder of Feminist Press is really the fourth one. I asked about including her name on the list, and she said, well, Editing is a is the silent profession, uh, but Florence Howe uh, was really key key in that as well. And both she and I did this. Everybody did this as a labor of love, but uh, we did it without um, without payment because we love the work we do. Uh, we are paying the poets a small amount and the other translators a small amount. Definitely 
labor of love. Lots of fun too. <laughs> How, how did you uh, did you pick the poems you wanted to translate, or how how did you get involved in the translation? Uh, that's a very good question. When I I started with the idea, in uh, I'm not sure, but at least before 1995, because I have correspondence about it from 95 and 96 and on. Um, so I don't remember when I first fielded the idea, and I don't remember now where I started. But I probably started here in Hanoi uh, with colleagues uh, at the Women's Union you know, about this idea because there's such a long history of poetry in this country and then took it to the States and back and forth. The uh, And at one point it, it stalled with the Vietnamese colleagues and as we were in discussion about it, I discovered that they were working on their own anthology of Vietnamese poetry by women. And so they wanted to finish that. Well, obviously, that I mean, that was great because that would be the first culling, right? We've got a thousand years of poetry. That's a huge number of poems, all right? So if they did an anthology, and it's a 700-page anthology, only Vietnamese, right? This book is bilingual, all right? Uh, then we would have a first run of poems. So we waited until that book was finished, and then we started with that book, and culled from it and changed. We added new poets, young poets who were born since the end of the American War in Vietnam. The youngest was born in 1980. Um, so we have young poets and we also added Kazao, which is the folk poetry. That's not in their anthology. And uh, we changed some poems and of course we didn't include all the poets that they had and we included only one poem by each poet with the exception of Ho Sung Hoon who's their most famous woman poet and we have three poems by her but everyone else just one poem but we started with that base you also had uh, ethnic minority writers yes and ethnic minority writers uh, so we have um, uh, writers from the center of the country, not as many as we would like, but the 54 ethnic minority groups in Vietnam, including Chinese Vietnamese, so we have a Chinese Vietnamese writer. Uh, we didn't particularly look for that group, but we looked for the poems. But part of what I was saying was we want ethnic minority people, we want young people, and my Vietnamese colleagues felt the same way. Is there a difference between the younger poets and the uh, earlier poets in terms of uh, expressing their personal feelings. Absolutely. And, and let me also add about, and I'll answer that, the, the other category, we also have overseas Vietnamese are in this book. Not as many as we would like, but we have voices from Vietnamese who are now American citizens, for instance, and so forth, and French citizens and so forth. Um, yes, and part of what this does is chronicle, and we did this in the introduction, chronicle the shift in voice so that when you look at the modern poets, um, the current generation as opposed to my generation, I'm in my mid-60s, uh, you know, the Vietnamese in their mid-60s, the American generation or the French generation, the voice is very different. And the voice of the modern writers, they're looking much more at personal topics and writing about things that would have been taboo in, you know, in their mother's generation. And uh, so very intimate and writing about sexuality in very different ways. And 
So it's uh, it's really exciting to see those shifts and changes. I think it was in your introduction you said there's uh, one of the writers uh, felt there was no taboos that the, she could cover she could write about anything. One of the poets there weren't the, the, as many taboos as the earlier uh, writers. Yes, and that's I mean you see that you see that of course across the whole culture of Vietnam and the shifting as as the culture is opened, it's become in some ways more traditional. They've lifted up traditional aspects of Vietnamese culture at the same time inviting in and young people, you know, looking very much towards towards the West and other countries. At the same time they're also looking towards their own traditional culture, much more traditional ceremonies and you know, both happening at the same time. And they're not they don't have to be in conflict with each other. It's part of a richness, right? And you see that in some of these very young modern writers. They're, the literary allusions go back to their own culture and also to Western culture in the same poem. And that's really quite wonderful. The final poem does that. It's very exciting. Is it? Um, do you think? Do you think it would attract people that don't, that aren't even into poetry? I think so. I mean, I feel that. I'm, um, my preference for reading actually is nonfiction writing. I also read novels and I read poetry, but I found this fascinating. And, and I find the change fascinating, and I find the, the modern quality in some of the ancient poems are fascinating. Some of the very earliest poetry from a thousand years ago, uh, I find incredibly moving. Just, you know, let me give you a if I can give you an example, well, the, go right to the um, take one of the uh, the first actual poem. Okay, the first actual poem that we have here, as opposed to oral poetry. Um, right? I just could read you the first four lines. Now, this is a person who lived in the late 11th century and the early 12th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called birth, old age, sickness, death. Birth, old age, sickness, death are commonplace and natural. Should we seek relief from one, another will surely consume us. Now that's as modern as you can get, right? We are all dealing with those four themes in our lives, but this is almost a thousand years old. And that's part of what's really, to me, quite wonderful about this um, this is one translated by Sun Wan, a um, Vietnamese here in Hanoi. It took me around Hanoi during the war, so we've been friends for more than 30 years, and we did a lot of co-translations. This is uniquely his. Being, non-being, this is by Leiti Ilan, uh, 12th century. All right? Being is non-being, non-being, being. Non-being is being, being, non-being. Pay no mind to being and non-being. Only then is there unity of the whole. Well, it's also modern. How, how old is this at the same time? And that's part of what's, for me, really lovely about this. And yet there are other poems that are set very historically. At the time of the famine, this one that I just opened to in 1945, two million people died in the North. There's one about, about the famine and what do I do as a poet when people are dying of starvation. That's uniquely tied to a point in history, but also, what do I, you know, what do I do as a person when people are dying in Iraq? So right. would, 
would you wouldn't characterize these as um, as political poems necessarily? No, no. And our ten intention in this was was not to be. We weren't trying to be political. We were looking for poems that had voice to them, and. Uh, and we did. We had some poems that we chose and translated them, and then we all, kind of, everybody read them and said, "Uh, <laughs> you know, why this, you know?" And and we threw it out, you know. And um, we all said that, "Why this, you know?" And asked and and went and got another poem by the same person. Um, how, how many poems altogether? So we have. Uh, I think it's 74 poems with 71 poets, and that, and then the kazal, which is the folk poetry, and and this is kind of fun. Um, is that oral tradition? Uh. Kazal is the oral tradition, so that's more than a thousand years old, and up to modern times. Nobody knows when these were done. In the process of working on this book, I took the two key editors to New York to meet with the publishing house in New York. We had a great time. We spent about a month together, and then they stayed on for another month. And uh, we would uh, go into New York and um, have breakfast together and sit over breakfast and talk and then go to the publishing house. And we got to talking at one point about this oral poetry, Kazal, and um, just over breakfast, right near Grand Central Station. And I've worked in the rice paddies. I'm one of the few Americans who's actually done that, and which is part of the book that I did called After Sorrow. Was, what was that life like, and what is it like? And I, you know, I just sort of said to them, "Well, wait a minute. The kazal must must have been done by women, because if you look at the life in the rice paddies, the men do solitary work. They plow in the rice paddies. The men. What, what do you mean by that? What do I mean by that? The men plow with a water buffalo. It's the man and the water buffalo. Right? You look at the work in the rice paddies, the women work in a long row transplanting, and the women do most of the harvesting with sickles. Right? The men do the buffalo carts, taking the rice back. Right? They, don't, they don't talk to the buffalo? They talk to the buffalo, but they give the buffalo orders. Turn left, turn right. <laughs> right? Right? But the, the songs that come out of the rice paddies, and I've been in the rice paddies, you know, they, they tell jokes and, and naughty stories, and, uh, and they sing, and they sing poetry. The poetry that comes out of those rice paddies, I think, and that's what's unique in this introduction, the piece that we came to, is probably done mostly by women. But men have claimed it, right? But now we look at it and we think it's probably most of them were done by women. How, how would, um, if it's an oral tradition, how did you find it? The men, if you go in the bookstore down the street, the men, there's a whole section of books of these poems. Now, we can't say this was done by women and this by men, or what we don't know. But let me read you one example. It's the lead poem that we chose here. Right? With the second month in sight, girls weed out grass, Boys build the dike. Girls speak lyrically and recite verses, while boys delight in body curses. And so there you have, even from the kazao itself, women speak lyrically and recite verses, while boys delight in body curses. They're out building the dike and telling 
body jokes, right? Not making exquisite poetry. So surely some of these were done by men, but probably most of them by women. Probably. We can never prove that. But the chance is really good that that's the case. So we included a number of Kazao and and make the point that these are likely done by women working together in the rice paddy. Because it's back-breaking work. You bend over at the waist, sticking those little seedlings in, you know, about five inches apart, eight inches apart, somewhere, you know, like that. Or harvesting is equally back-breaking because you bend over and you cut just above the root. And how are you going to, you're working together, how are you going to pass the time? Well, you, they made up these songs and stories and, and uh, recite them to each other. When did you, when did you work in the fields, sir? I did that in the late 80s. I, I did a book called After Sorrow, and I was for years the first foreigner whom the Vietnamese government allowed to be with an ordinary family. It was actually the other side of the story from the first book I did, which is called Sensing the Enemy about boat people. And that's the only book set in a boat people camp, written at the time of the boat people exodus. When I write something, I always check the manuscript with Vietnamese in the story and anyone who would feel strongly about it. So I took After Sorrow to Vietnamese here in Hanoi and had them read it. And that was in the early 80s, 83. And their response was, well, this is fine, but the real story is the people who stayed, not the people who left. That was their point of view. And so then I spent four years to get permission Permission that takes five days now, but took me four years at that point because the country was closed. And I, so I was the first foreigner they allowed to come and just live with ordinary people and learn their stories and what their life was like. And that was before this openness happened. And then, though not my intention at the time, I also chronicled the process of the opening. And that's in a book called After Sorrow. Uh, and then this is the work that's come since then. Did you learn Vietnamese at the time, uh, before this, uh, before the, uh, working in the fields? Uh? Uh, no, I was in the south during the war. I was in Quang Ai, in the center. So I learned in the 60s, and I, I never, if I could live my life over again, uh, there are very few changes I would make, but one key change I would make would be to go to language school. And the people who came after me did get to go to language school, but I didn't. So I've learned it picking it up, and I'm not linguistically gifted, not at all. So I'm sure I slaughter it, but, um, but I try, and I spend a little time each day studying and, and do a lot of translation and have good friends who correct me all the time. <laughs> and Vietnamese are also, they're very forgiving. They're very forgiving of our attempts to learn their language. They're so delighted when an American will try. They, they really are delighted, and they laugh and laugh when we, tell, you know, when we make errors that are outrageously funny or absurd, and I've made a, I've made a whole lot of them, right? But they're not, they're not critical. They just are so delighted when you try and speak. So, so um, it, must be very diff- it must be very difficult to translate a poem if uh, you have to understand the Vietnamese first, obviously. Uh, the cultural context and uh, the connotations, the meanings of the, what's written. It is difficult, and I think the, um, 
I want to say in terms of this book, uh, we had a group of us who worked on this, and um, and in most cases there were duos. Occasionally in this book you find a translation done like that one that I read, being non being done just by a Vietnamese person. There are a few places where just I did some, uh, but mostly we had a had a pair, and um, there were a group of us of pairs working together. We got together every other Friday afternoon for a while and critiqued and, and I would set up the poems on a page bilingually, you know, and then we'd get together and sort of critique them. And it was fascinating. It was a whole lot of fun. We had a great time doing it. And what was really fun to watch were the Vietnamese colleagues, right, who are very good English. They all have very good English. And, uh, and the Americans maybe had Vietnamese or not, right? Um, they all had some Vietnamese. To watch the Vietnamese colleagues get into these ferocious discussions with each other about what a line meant. All right? Now, this is their own language and their own culture. And, they, and sometimes we'd be sitting around this long table. I mean, one of them jump up and they'd run around the table and they got so excited. No, no, it means this. No, no, it means that. And I would come with all the dictionaries that I had and we'd pull out every dictionary. We'd get into these great discussions about what what does the line mean? And some of the poems use Vietnamese language that comes from Chinese and use, because they're ancient poems, so they use words that aren't in common now. We had, uh, we had a Vietnamese American working on some of these poems, very helpful, wonderful colleague, uh, but she was using dictionaries from the South, from the former South, and, and she just plain got some of them wrong because she didn't know the words, right? The word for, for little boat is different in the South. There are lots of little, there are lots of words for boats yeah, in this country. There are lots of boats and different kinds of boats. Just like in English, a canoe is different from a skiff, is different from a dory, is different from a sloop, right? They're all different words for boats. And you can't have a sloop on a pond, right? A sloop is a big boat, you know, with sails and so forth. Or junk on a pond. You have a little tiny boat. And how they paddle them here is different from in the States. So you, you have to, those are words of a locality. And you have to know that local word. So our Vietnamese friends and colleagues in the States, many of whom have come from the South, won't know a word that was used in some of the ancient poetry that came from the North. Right? They might not know that. And, and the meaning goes completely wrong right? if they don't, don't understand what the word is. Right? So it's a, we, a lot of discussion about this and lots of changes. And as we worked, the, and this is part of the interest of the language and publication, the whole book was set up here in Hanoi. That is, we did all the computer work here in Hanoi. And we ran into all kinds of difficulties. The greatest difficulty was not between Hanoi and the United States, right? not between the two countries. It was between actually the same difficulty in New York across their own publishing house, and the difficulty was between PC computers and Mac computers. All right? Macintosh, Apple computers, all right? Apple. Because here they use uh, PCs more, is it? Oh, the the printing industry uses PCs, yeah? 
No, here they also use, people also use Mac. I mean, but the publishing house here in Hanoi uses PC. The publishing house in the U.S. also uses PC, but their graphic designer uses Apple Mac, okay? So even in New York, they couldn't, and we were doing the diacritical marks, all right? This is set up bilingually. And I, to my knowledge, it's the first time where the English version that uses Vietnamese words also uses the diacritical marks. Because if, in Vietnamese, if you don't have the diacritical mark on the, well, the tone mark on the word, on the letter, you're using some other word. And the books that are published in the U.S., drives me crazy, the, the books that are printed, histories or biographies or whatever, when they don't have the Vietnamese names with diacritical marks, you can't tell who they're talking about. Right? That's a different name. That's a different person. Win Ti Han, Win Ti Han. You know, these are, who are these? You, know, you don't know who it is. Right? You have to have the diacritical marks. And, and we can do that now. But it's complicated. We had to do this with PDF files and back. It was, got very complicated. Um, and then changing and, and all the rest. But we could do it. So we, and we, it was the first time anybody had done this. So we had to figure the road to go. And now we know how to do it. We could do it a whole lot faster now because we made so many mistakes setting up a system of how to do it and how to do the design here. And then we sent the computer files to the States. It was printed in Canada published in the U.S. and it will be published probably published here in Vietnam as well. We're just doing this step by step. We had to get one done first and you know next next week we're talking about how will we do the, the version here because there's a great interest here and we have all the files here. We can Would it be a bilingual edition too? The one here? or I mean will you just do a bilingual edition? Yes, we'll do the bilingual edition here because they've already done a book that's in Vietnamese, and what's exciting about this is that it's bilingual. And I just got an email the other day from Sun Wan, the translator I mentioned, who, who uh, he learned English by listening to BBC. He's completely self-taught and exquisite, exquisite English. This is one of the people who took me around Hanoi in 1975, right at the end of the war, March and April 1975. Uh, and, and he's anxious to have, he wants it, published here in Vietnam because there's so many people, Vietnamese, who are interested to see it. And of course, they'll want to check our translation. It's side by side, right? It's one thing to do it in, in English because nobody will go check, right? But do it side by side. And we were busy checking line by line. Is it accurate? Is it poetic? Right? Because you both want content, but the language and the grammar of the languages are entirely different. So you want basically line by line. There are a few places where we did two lines that it's not exactly line by line, but two lines together, you know, just you, somehow you couldn't get it to work. But to try and keep the same, a rhythm that's similar, woo, it's a challenge. And we wanted as you know, as we went back and forth, back and forth, checking my Vietnamese, my two Vietnamese colleagues, right? They were on me all the time. Is this, you know, and one poem, we went over and over and over that poem, trying to get it right, 
right? You know, I mean, they were they were so rigorous with me, and I love them for that, because we we think we've got, you know, we're the we're the first ones out the door doing this. It's the first anthology, bilingual anthology of women's Vietnamese women's poetry anywhere. It's the first bilingual anthology of any Vietnamese poetry published out of Hanoi, men or women. And the introduction, I include a little bit of poetry by men. You know, it's, we're not trying to keep the men out of this. We were just, this is part of a series that happens to be women's poetry. And in the process, we've sort of realized things that none of us had seen before. As I told you about the Kazao is one, another piece that came to me as I worked on the introduction, the Chum sisters. Hi, Ba Chum. Very famous heroes in Vietnam. What I had not realized until I worked on the introduction is that these are the first heroes of Vietnam in Vietnamese history. They're the ones who liberated the country in 40 AD. Two sisters and then the Chinese came back in in 43 AD. Uh, Anyone before that is a legendary hero. These are historical heroes. We know where they lived. We know their homeland. And uh, so to say it that clearly, right? The, actually, the first historical heroes in Vietnam, not legendary, not mythical, are women. Right? Then I came across, there's a wonderful anthology of Vietnamese women writers that's recently out, done by a professor in the South. It's huge. It's like 1,500 pages in the first of two volumes. Um, Winting up here, wonderful book, and I use that a lot. Um, and so I found in that book a poem by one of the Trum sisters. Now in Vietnam there is a culture, and I think this may be unique to Vietnam, of poetry by their statesmen generals. Right? You know about this, right? Very, fa- including Ho Chi Minh, right? And Bong Nguyen Zap, so forth, right? So, um, but Nguyen Chai, so forth. Very famous, long history of that. One of the pieces that I realized during this introduction was that culture actually begins with one of the Chum sisters, with Chum Chak, all right? She's the first hero. And the first poem that is a resistance poem is written by her. So then you get that tradition actually was started by a woman. And that poem's in the in the introduction. It's not in the book, but it's in the introduction. How do you how do you, how do you know the others are mythical? We we don't know when they, you know, when they were born, when they died, where they lived, the home kings, and so forth. Right? You know, it's there is this long tradition and history, and there are the temples, but where we actually know a historical character, the battles, the place where the person was born, the mother's name, you know, we, we know this information about the Trum sisters. We know the husband's names, they know the names of the women generals and the men generals, you know, it's, it's historical. Before that, it's, it's in story. It, it must be based on some truth, right, but we don't have the details. You can't say it's historical, right. Here we have some historical facts. It's not a whole lot. But we we know that this happened. So how um, were you interested in literature when you first came, uh, Vietnamese literature? Uh, uh, somewhat, but my background's in mathematics and 
chemistry and philosophy. I'm not, you know, I'm not trained in any of this. Um, but, you know, when I came to Vietnam in the 60s, you, um, we were not aware, most of us, of how rich, we Americans, right, how rich and deep their culture and history and their history of resistance was. And once you start to study that, you realize that there's no way that, you know, the, the Vietnamese were going to stand, they were going to stand against, the, they did stand against the French, they stood against the Chinese, they were going to stand against the Americans. There's a long, long culture of that. And they used historically, and now I approach a historian, they've used the same methods they used against the Chinese and against the French. They used against the Americans. And they used against the Khmer Rouge and they used against the Chinese when they invaded after the Americans. So it's, they have this long, long history. And now you have a country that has had, only had peace since 1990. Huh? only since 1990. So if you meet somebody who's 90 years old or 100 years old, they've known only 17 years of peace since 1990. And the young generation, as the younger generation has grown up in a time of peace, but the older people have this deep, deep, you know, it's kind of down inside them. It's, it's not on the top of people's minds, but it's there and it's in the literature, it's in the folk poetry, it's, it's in the society. So, uh, do you think poetry, um, do people read, uh, in terms of the audience, who are you trying to aim at, the, the audience of the, this uh, anthology? Uh, for this anthology, we did it because we wanted to do it. And, um, you know, people ask about audience. Uh, I think, uh, I will um, cite a wonderful friend of mine, Hung Ngoc, Vietnamese uh, scholar, who's probably Vietnam's most famous general scholar. 88 years old. He um, writes columns, three columns a week. He publishes lectures and so forth. Um, we once, and he's a close friend. We do a lot of work together. And um, and I have the same approach. He did. Yeah, I do the work I do uh, because now I know I have a book that I can go look things up in. Right? I know it's accurate. I know how hard we work to make it accurate. And I know that as Vietnamese friends read it, they will point out, there's surely errors, right? Uh, we know there are errors in it. And we know our Vietnamese friends and colleagues will find them and point them out to us. And we'll correct them. And so what it, you know, what I'm basically creating is the tool that I want to have. And it's very selfish. Uh, and share it with others that this, as far as we know, is the best we could do. And it's a first try, and other people will come and do other anthologies, and we hope they will. And, you know, we chased down the biographical information on all these people. We had to find them to get the rights. So that was a bit of a challenge. This is Subversity here on KCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. You're listening to an interview done in Hanoi, uh, earlier in August 2007 about um, Vietnamese literature and we're talking with Lady Borton. This is Dan Zhang with Subversity. There's a wonderful story with that. There's a poem in in here that I just, we all love, called Her Wedding. It's a wonderful poem translated by Thuy Din and Martha Collins in the States. And we had to get the permission for it. And I was relentless 
with Tan Bin, my Vietnamese colleague who was doing the permission. So we have to have the permission on this. We had to find this woman. She was deceased. Had to find her. Her. Where did she die? Whose family? You know, in France or where? You know, and, and it turned out in Saigon. We finally found. Uh, and I got a little um, hmm, strong, shall we say? You know, I was a little hard on her. She was hard on the people in Saigon. Looking at. Minha, the other editor, at one point said to both of us, she said, the two of you were acting just like mothers-in-law, carping on people. And we all laughed, you know, and I was at their office and I was biking home and I thought, yeah, we did. Both of us acted just like mothers-in-law. You know, we were carping at each I was carping at Tanvin, she was carping at the people in Saigon. And then I thought, oh, we have this book and we don't have any poems about mothers-in-law and daughters-in-law. You know, I got home and I emailed them and I emailed back to Minha, the key editor, and I said, how can we do this book, right? And we don't have a single poem about a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law, right? You know, we all have to, whoops, you know. So some of the kazao, we went and found some kazao that talk about what it's like to be a daughter-in-law in this culture. So, you know, we were looking for themes. You know, the editor, Florence Howe, at some point said to us, you don't have any urban poems, Right? Are there any poems? We have wonderful poems now about Hanoi and Saigon. And uh, what about aging? You know, what about getting old? <laughs> right? What about raising children? And uh, so she, last summer, you know, she, you know, said to us, "What about these themes?" And we we came back and recast the list to look at at themes and you know to try and get that range of of life of we, we were very clear that we were not trying to do politics. Right? Some of the books are about what it's like to be in war, uh, what it was like in the French War, what it was like in the Chinese occupation, what it was like uh, during the American War. But we were not, this is not about politics, it's about history and culture and life and, um, and the various themes that are common to all of us. Were there, other, were there certain themes that you didn't want to touch? Uh, yeah, we didn't want rhetoric. I, we didn't want rhetoric. And there, during the, um, you know, during the French and American period, there's some poems that are, are rhetoric, and but those don't, they don't survive as poems. Right? They die. They're like propaganda. Sure, sure. Uh, and everybody knows this, right? Uh, so. We didn't want that, you know, we weren't after propaganda. Uh, but the wonderful, wonderful poems from that, those periods about what it was like to live under the bombs and what it was like to work on the, you know, work on the, uh, I don't know whether I can, uh, you know, work on the roads and be, uh, you know, be in the, uh, you know, what, what it was like to have, have that, um, you know, give up your youth and be on the, you know, here, here's one, uh, The Sand in My Village, uh, uh, this is about uh, somebody in the center of the country. Uh, and, you know, the women did a lot of the road work on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, um, crossing the pass banked by layers of clouds. I felt uneasy recalling the confused sea in our path. I felt in the pocket of my blouse searching for something. Suddenly there were tiny grains of sand, small and resplendent. 
golden sand, golden sand falling, grain spilling like sunlight in my hands, like the many rays of light reflected from the sea, golden sand with speckled colors from the eons in the deep. Golden sand falling, golden sand. After a sweet rain, the sun is more radiant. The sand from my seashore home stretches far. The higher the waves, the greater our flowing gold. At night, the sand is a vast white. The willow shadows frame my own. Our village road is like glimmering sand. The measuring moon follows my every footstep. The wind tosses the dunes into roaring grains of sand that coalesce into high passes. Whenever we finish this battle with the invaders, I'll go home and give the grains of sand back to the sea. Now that's written in 1972, right? During the intense time of bombing, right? U.S. bombing. Uh, so, you know, it's about about homeland and the effort to the long lines of people going to fight against the Americans. But what are they fighting for? It's to be able to go home, you know, to the grains of sand in the sea. And, and also the imagery of building up the passes, the grains of sand are also the people, one by one, little grains of sand, you know, who fought against us. Um, but it's not, it's not overt politics. It's about this is what it felt like to be living that life. And it gives us a sense of... Um, now, here's, here's one by a very, very famous poet of the American War, but this is a modern poem. Uh, there's a bilingual anthology of her poetry done by Tweedin and uh, Martha Collins, published by Curbstone in the U.S. But now this is a very modern poem by the same, same person, Lumpty Miza. It's called I Return to Myself. I Return to Myself. Free the moon for its fullness. Free the clouds for the wind. Free the color green for the grass, I return to myself. Free the gentle girls to be unaffected. Free people from suffering, from competing for, for fame. Free them all, free them all, I return to myself. Free teenage girls from hiding far away. Free gray hair to be white forever. Everyone carries a smile to chase away tears. Joy has colors. Sorrow is transparent. I return to myself. Poetry is the scarlet of blood seeping into a void. Life has untold blessings and disasters we so then unexpectedly repeat. The weary can never rest. The pain can no longer cry. The silent ones are like shadows. I return to myself. Luckily, a small child remains inside the soul, her gaze fresh, shimmering at the roots, her heart still naive, I return to myself. Now, that's written by somebody roughly my age, mid-60s, uh, in uh, 2004. Right? This, is, this is a veteran of the American War in Vietnam, uh, husband uh, had a stroke and handicapped, What's it like now? You know, she looks back for teenagers in Vietnam for herself, graying hair like mine. Uh, the Child Inside. This is it's a kind of timeless poem. Uh, very different from the collection that uh, Tweedin and Martha Collins did, which is more poetry from the war itself and uh, available from Curbstone. How, how many of the poets uh, are full-time poets? Or can, can they live 
make a living as a poet, a freelance writer or freelance poet these days? Very good question. To my knowledge, uh, uh, nobody in the world makes a living as a poet, period. End of discussion, okay? So we just start from that point. Uh, in making this choice, we looked for people who were primarily poets. Almost everyone in this country writes poetry in some way, you know, not quite, but it's a, it's a country of poets, particularly among older people, not so much from the digital generation. Right? They're, they're on the web and all the rest, but uh, it's, a, it's a culture of poetry. Uh, we were looking for people whose work was primarily poetry, um, as opposed to primarily short story writers. Um, but all of them must make a living somewhere else. Right? They write short stories, they write journalism, they teach, they are scientists, they're chemists, they're... Uh, they're professors, they're housewives, they're whatever, they're retired, they have another life. And the, and the biographies make some of that clear. Uh, they're not, you, nowhere in the world can you make your living as a poet unless, uh, I, there are one or two exceptions the whole world over. I don't know anybody in Vietnam that's true of. Uh, yeah, one, uh, I know in your, from looking over your bi the biographies in the book, uh, some of them have won actually prizes. Uh, literary prizes or poetry prizes? Sure, 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 sure. Um, you know, most of the prizes in this country go to men, right? Most of them go to men. Uh, of the Ho Chi Minh Prize, uh, Anta, who's in this book, uh, received it posthumously. Uh, Sun Quinn has received a number of prizes. She, uh, if she were still alive, would be my age. We won the same year. Uh, she died very tragically in 1988 in a traffic accident, and uh, her, her, and her husband and and son, who was a child prodigy, all three of them, uh, tremendous. The, I was here at the time. I knew her not well, but I knew her, and I was here uh, at the time of her funeral. And there had never been such an outpouring um, in, for a public funeral uh, since the time of Ho Chi Minh's death. And just everybody in the street because he was a famous playwright and she was a very famous poet and a short story writer and their 12 year old son was known internationally in the uh, then Soviet bloc world as a child prodigy poet um, so there's a poem by her that's also a very famous song it's a wonderful gorgeous song a lot of these poems have been set to music and are popular songs um, so it's a you know it's a that's in the popular genre so, um, do you feel that um, college students would um, would um, would like this book? Would uh, it would appeal to college students in lit classes or comparative literature classes? Absolutely. I think anybody in uh, Vietnamese studies, this is this is the book. <laughs> you know? It's the only one from Vietnam itself, and everything else you're reading has gone through the filter. This is this is chosen by Vietnamese originates, it's edited in Vietnam. It's a very, very different when you get that group of Vietnamese running around the table challenging each other on, on the translations. Very, very different from having a Vietnamese American doing it because the Vietnamese American doesn't have that depth base in the culture. You can't. You can't if you've spent a significant amount of time in, a, in another country. So it's, I think we've got a kind of base going that's, that's really wonderful and exciting. So 
you know, my hope is that uh, it can be a resource for other people to, to build from, you know, do other books um, of men and women and uh, for use in classrooms for Vietnamese studies, comparative literature, that uh, here's a, a compilation of, um, you know, of writing for people who want to look at Vietnamese literature and compare it with Chinese literature, where you don't have this tradition of invasion, right? So you don't have the poet statesperson. It's now a tradition started by women, by a woman. Right? Uh, you, you don't have that in China. And I've checked with um, Sam Hamill about that, who is one of the, the best uh, people working in translation published in the U.S. of Chinese writing. Uh, they weren't invaded in the same way. The invasion came into Vietnam, not... The Vietnamese didn't invade other countries. Right? Uh, even we say they invaded Cambodia, but actually the Khmer Rouge invaded, invaded Vietnam first. Uh, nobody tells that part of the story in the U.S., but politically backed by the U.S., they did that. Uh, so it's not a, they're not a, they're not a bellicose tradition. They are a defending tradition, a defensive tradition. Militarily, it's very, very strong. Very strong. Um, so yes, for comparative literature, I think this is a, a really good place to start. Uh, and partly because the introduction, uh, I also raised the major Vietnamese male writers as well. I don't, I don't go into that in great detail, but they're not ignored. It's not just about women. When you are in Ohio, at Ohio University, what, what do you teach course courses? No, I don't. I'm adjunct uh, for Ohio University uh, with the Southeast Asian Studies program because I'm always based here at Hanoi. But I do linking for them. So the um, administrator for our, one of the administrators for our program will be here in October and um, for a kind of trade fair for university, American universities. But then I'll work with her for two days and hook up. I um, worked with them to get Vietnamese into the language, into the curriculum. And... Um, you know, Vietnamese studying there and kind of cultural exchange and things like that. Um, do you find the, has the American reception changed since the war? Or is it, I mean, the anti-war movement was, um, did they, do you think, do you feel they forgot about Vietnam after the war? In large part, I, I think many people in the anti-war movement have gone on to other themes. And uh, so I'm, I'm rare from the anti-war movement. I'm almost unique. I think I probably am unique uh, in someone, one or two other people, uh, who, uh, John McAuliffe is one, uh, who consistently stayed with that theme, with the theme of, of Vietnam. He's worked more also in Cambodia and Laos, and also been based in the U.S. I'm unique in being based here. Um, that um, people who were active on those issues uh, very shortly thereafter switched and uh, looked at the same problem in uh, Nicaragua, Central America, and so forth. And I'm very glad they did. They, I think they did absolutely the right thing, and they've gone on to look at other issues of global warming or, you know, whatever, Iraq, you know, and, uh, and I'm so glad that they have. Uh, I've, just by happenstance, stayed on the theme of Vietnam, so it doesn't make sense for me at this point in my life to go work on other themes. I don't speak, I don't know any Arabic, and I don't know Spanish, and, you know, I just, I'm, I'm not useful. 
Whereas here, because I've been based here for so many years, and I have, like this colleague Sun Wan did these translations with, we go back to, I met him in the spring of 75. He took me around in Hanoi during the war. So we go way back. My Vietnamese colleague, I live in an office of a Vietnamese NGO, but the head of that NGO also took me around Hanoi during the war. Uh, other colleagues I've known for many, many years so that I can go to them with ideas like this book and, and I have a kind of credibility. All right? At the point I went to the publishing house about this book, I had already published After Sorrow and or it was in process. I don't remember when I first raised it. But that was a project done with the women's union. This publishing house, the women's publishing house in Hanoi, has its 50th birthday in October. This is not a new publishing house. 50 years old. Right? And I had worked with its larger institution, the Vietnam Women's Union, since 1975. So I was a known... And I had done this book, After Sorrow, which was a first, right? and through them and with them, and working on the manuscript with them. So we know it's accurate. Right? And it's, not, it's published in the U.S., published by Viking, and also published here in Hanoi. So we know that that story is accurate, because I checked everything with people, and they all got to correct me, which they did ferociously, I assure you. Um, so that when I took this idea to the publishing house here, they knew that my process would be one where they, they would control their own material, right? Where I corrected you right in the beginning of the interview, right? This is not my book, right? I was the one who started the idea, right? But it's not my book. And, and we did it together, and I'm not... You know, they wanted to put my name first as the editor, and, and I said no, because I didn't choose the poems, right? I, I don't have that comprehensive knowledge of Vietnamese literature. I couldn't do that work. I'm going to do the translations with Vietnamese checking me very carefully. So any translation you see here that has only my name, I assure you, I'm not the only person who worked on that translation. I, I didn't do it with a key colleague, but my editor, particularly Minha, you know, and I... One of those poems, we went over and over and over. She kept reading and saying, no, lady, you don't have it right yet. <laughs> you don't have it right yet. And she would retell me the story that generated the thing. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's somebody who marries somebody else's husband the second time around. There's a whole complicated Hanoi love story, right? <laughs> that we have to get it right. And, and um, you know, so they were very rigorous with me on that. But they controlled the material. I wasn't the one. But at one point, you know, one of the poems I just said, boring, I don't understand this, nobody understands this poem, and it doesn't, it, 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 it's not as good as the rest. And at one point, she came, Minha came to me and said, right at the end, this is the weakest poem. And, and I said, yes, it is the weakest poem, and we don't have a better poem by this poet. Let's, let's take it out, right? But if we take out the weakest poem, there'll be another poem that's weakest, right? We're not going to keep taking out the weakest poem. We'll end up with nothing, right? But one poem was just not up to the rest of them. And, and I was the one who said, yeah, let's take it. But, you know, we, we work together on it. We'll, we'll get together tonight. On, uh, now we're doing, we've got to get the books to the people, because this is just out. And 
There's a little Hanoi humidity, right? We've been waiting for this to happen. Thunder on us and a good solid rain. Um, Do you feel the... Um, are, are people, your friends here who were like active in the resistance in the war against the Americans, do they feel, uh, what do they feel about the, the invasion, I guess, of the corporations coming in? Uh, do they think this is good for Vietnam or, I mean, generally? Yes, it, it is what Vietnam wants. Um, it's, I, I know the underside of that. Um, there's a, you know, there's a very famous book that's been on the bestseller list in the States called Confessions of an Economic Hitman by John Perkins. Uh, it's been translated into Vietnamese. I'm now reading the subsequent one about, uh, forget the exact title, but it, about the American Empire through combination of corporations with the NSA. Um, the nickname for that is No Such Agency. It's, um, it's a secret agency, the National Security Agency, more secret than the CIA, and the attempt to use corporations to force uh, Indonesia and Vietnam countries into debt uh, in order to serve American corporations. And yes, that's, that's uh, what's happening. Um, I try and work with American colleagues to, and have for many years to help them see that that process is happening, to flag it for them, to say when the World Bank first came, to say, friends, watch out because the World Bank is a bank and the language that is used by development people is, um, I don't even know the the word to describe what happens, but it will, deception at least. Um, they talk about being donors. They're not donors. They're lenders. You know, poor Vietnamese who are very bright, very well educated, but naive about this. And I say this right to their faces. Naive, naivete means you haven't seen, you, right? Because they were in the former Soviet bloc. Right? Very well-educated people, right? But in the former city of they don't know how our system works. And that's what makes them naive, because their frame of knowledge is very limited. Uh, that's our interview with uh, Lady Borton on Vietnamese literature. Uh, she's working on a new book that's out called The Perfect Muse, Vietnamese Feminist Poems, a bilingual edition that's out from Feminist Press right now. This is Dan Zhang signing off for Subversity on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. And you can go to the Subversity website at KUCI.org slash tilde, D-T-S-A-N-G, where you can get archived editions of recent shows. This is Dan Zhang signing off for Subversity.